everybody. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Uh, my name's Eric. Welcome to E3 and Merry Almost Christmas, right? Everybody got your shopping done? I think I almost have mine done, believe it or not. Um, sorry to blow the curve for the rest of the husbands in the room, but um, so it's been a it's been a pretty good week all in all for me uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I, I, I found a sweater that I forgot I had and, and um, I love and I, I should let Mark borrow it. I don't think he, I'm, yeah. <laughs> okay, 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 yeah, sure. Um, also, now you're insulting me. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but the second thing that happened is uh, we've been sort of in a quandary in, in, our, in, our, um, in our household. Uh, we have a couple different nativity scenes in our, in our house, One's, uh, when, and one looks like this. Uh, it's kind of an Advent nativity thing. I think it may have come from, from Germany. Um, and every day uh, in December, you hang a little figure on a little pin in there. Uh, and about three weeks ago, we had figured out that one of the figures was missing. And, you know, and so uh, then we figured out that the figure that was missing was Jesus. <laughs> so being a pastor, this threw me into no, no you know, small theological quandary. What do you do if Jesus is missing from your nativity scene? And then we figured out that uh, my wife sucked Jesus up into a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so she felt pretty bad about this. Uh, and so yesterday, um, I, I pulled the vacuum bag off of the vacuum cleaner and cut it open, and we went searching, and I just wanted to report to everybody, uh, we found Jesus in the vacuum bag, rescued him, and, uh, and now he's back awaiting his, uh, awaiting his pinning on Christmas Eve. So I just wanted to share that with everybody. It has nothing to do with anything else except... That's my life. I um, want to share a couple things uh, also about my life. This is, this is something that's pretty important to me. This is my uh, boxed collection of uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings set. And um, I had this, I probably got this when I was 10. And like you can see that it is like well, well used uh, I lost the two towers and had to buy it again. The pages are yellowed and, and the spines are kind of crumbling. I uh, can't tell you how many times I've read that book. And, and one of the reasons I read it so many times is because it's just such an amazing story. I mean, who in here has like a favorite story? It might be a film. It might be a book. It might be just something maybe, you know, like great stories are amazing and they do so many things in our lives. Like the Lord of the Rings, like I feel like it taught me kind of what heroes are, are like. And it taught me about persevering. And it taught me about hoping in the face of impossible odds. And kind of just never giving up that idea that, that good is going to win in the end. And story in that sense is so powerful in our lives. It teaches, it teaches us kind of as children just different things to grab onto. Um, and then I think later on in our lives, story changes and, and it begins to shape us in a, in a different way. And, 
And I want to, in just a second, show a trailer for a film clip that takes this idea of how story shapes us to sort of a uh, an entertaining and extreme degree. There was a movie that was released in 2007 called Stranger Than Fiction. Has anybody seen the movie? Yeah. Stars Will Ferrell, Emma Thompson, Queen Latifah, Dustin Hoffman, and Maggie Gyllenhaal. It's a beautiful film, wonderfully acted, and, and basically the plot line is this. There's a guy who just kind of is living his life, and then one day wakes up to realize that he is a character in somebody's story. Uh, Emma Thompson is the author, and he begins to hear her voice, the narrator's voice in his head. And it gets at this idea of like how our story shapes us. And so what I want to do is just watch this, watch this trailer and then kind of unpack this just a little bit. So go ahead and roll that, guys. Excuse me. Excuse me. Are you Miss Eiffel? Yes. Am I interrupted? Yes. I'm the assistant your publisher's hired. The publishers think I have writer's block. Do you have writer's block? I don't know how to kill Harold Crick. This is a story about a man named Harold Crick. Harold lived a life of solitude. He would walk home alone. He would eat alone. When others' minds would fantasize about their upcoming day... Hello? Harold just counted brush strokes. All right, who just said Harold just counted brush strokes? Dave, I'm being followed. How are you being followed? You're not moving. It's by a woman's voice. She's narrating. Oh. Harold couldn't concentrate on his work. I can't think while you're talking. You have a voice speaking to you. About me, accurately, and with a better vocabulary. Harold found himself exasperated. Shut up! Cursing the heavens in futility. No, I'm not. I'm cursing you, you stupid voice. So shut up and leave me alone! So you're the young gentleman who called me about the narrator. The thing to determine conclusively is whether you're in a comedy or a tragedy. Have you met anyone recently who might loathe the very core of you? I'm an IRS agent. Get bent, tax man! Everyone hates me. Well, that sounds like a comedy. Have you written anything new today? Figured out how to kill Harold Quick. Little did he know that events had been set in motion that would lead to his imminent death. What? Why? Hello? Come on! It is oh, goody. This woman, Karen Eiffel, one of my favorite authors. And that's her. That's the voice. She's the narrator. Karen Eiffel, my name is Harold Crick. I believe you're writing a story about me. Is this a joke? You have to understand that this isn't a story to me. It's my life. I won't live. I need to speak to Karen Eiffel. I'm one of her characters. I'm sorry? I'm in her new book, and she's going to kill me. How exciting is that? So, it's really a, a great movie. And it gets at this idea of the power of, of story in our lives. And not just a story that, that you read in, in a book. Because I, I think that we all have stories that, that we're, we're living out, in a sense. Uh, we don't have a, a narrator with a very beautiful English accent maybe speaking in our minds. But I think that we've all 
kind of owned certain plot lines of our lives, and, 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 the, and the belief in our story tends to shape our decisions in the present. Now, let me talk about, let me show you what, I'm, what I mean. Uh, there's, there's some storylines that we might live out that are, that are quite sort of positive to us. And, and one of the storylines might be that I am loved and therefore capable of, of, of being loved. And so we make decisions based on the fact that I believe that my story is, is shaping up this way, that the plot line of my life is that I am worthy of being loved. So I'm capable of giving love and receiving love. That the world is essentially, at least at some level, a safe place. That if I am blessed with, with a job or, or with some money, that I can rely on the fact that, that I don't need to hold on to it so tightly that I'll never be generous. That the world is essentially a place that I can inhabit where people aren't out to get me at every turn. That I'm capable of growing that I'm capable of learning so that when a new challenge comes around, I believe that my story is such that I can take on a new challenge because I think the, the story that I'm living out says that I can get through this, that I can learn and grow. And then lastly, that I'm made for eternity, that there is something more to this earth, that there is something more to this body, that there, is, that there is something that is going to last forever. And if you believe these things about your life, if you believe this, these storylines, you will make decisions, I would suggest, right now that are consistent with this plot. Does that make sense? But there's some storylines that, that I think we would all also own that aren't so great. There are times, or, or we might know people, or you might be a person that would say, my story is a little bit rougher, like this, like, I think I'm an accident. Like, I've been told that I'm an accident. That there's no rhyme or reason, there's no, there's no reason for me being here except for the fact that two people happen to be in the same place at the same time, and, and I emerge nine months later. That I'm not worthy of love. That I'm essentially unlovable so that when relationships get too close I I put a wall up because the story of my life is that without I'm destined to fail so whenever a new challenge comes around well I'm pretty sure this is going to go south so why why even bother why risk that the wor- that this world is all there is and it's actually kind of dangerous So not only if I get a hold of something, you will not take this from me. I will hold on to this. I will fight. I will guard this with my, uh, with every effort I have. Because it's all there is. There's nothing beyond this body. And and these are pretty depressing stories, aren't they? Uh, But just as an aside, I want to tell you that part of being a community of faith and part of being a pastor is, is seeing these stories intersect with God's story and see his story begin to change these stories. Because God's story says that there is nobody who is essentially unlovable. God's story says that there is always another horizon for growth no matter where you're at in your life, no matter what circumstance you find you're in. And that definitely 
this world and you will go on for eternity. And so as, as hard as these stories seem, there is another bigger, powerful story that's at work. And, it's, and that story tends to trump these things. And so we get to see people who might come into our orbit with this story, but then we begin to see them change and their plot line changes and the decisions they make for their life begins to change. That's the best part of being in a community of faith. I gotta tell you, it's better than anything I've ever come across. And, And I dwell on this idea of story because when Jesus appears, when Jesus is born, and when he begins his ministry, he walks in to a story, a very particular story that the, that the Jewish people were living out, that they knew the plot line they were walking in. And things had gotten confused, but they had a particular belief about where they were at in the story, what, but particularly how the story was going to end. And when Jesus walks into this story, he both kind of speaks to the story that was going on, but he also changes it. And so we're going to take a look this morning at uh, the story of Israel, kind of as Jesus comes into it, and in particularly the role of glory, this word glory that, that we may have heard if you've been around church at all. So the different gospel writers all kind of talk about Jesus beginning his ministry in a different way. Um, a guy named Matthew wrote, the, wrote a collection of stories about Jesus. And in Matthew 4, he basically says this, that, that Jesus went north of Jerusalem to an, a, re, a region called Galilee. Now, Galilee was, was, uh, had particular kind of cultural differences with Jerusalem and cultural significance. It was much more of a mixed sort of Gentile and Jewish population. And there was also a lot of uh, rebellion that would just kind of stir up in Galilee. And Matthew tells us that Jesus goes up to Galilee uh, for a particular reason. And then Matthew says this about it, that when Jesus goes up there to begin his ministry, that this fulfilled what God had said through the prophet Isaiah, that in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So that's the way Matthew begins his, his gospel, with sort of a, a, an Old Testament prophet by the guy, uh, name of a guy, name of Isaiah. And what was happening in that moment is that Israel's story involved a couple different things. We've talked about it a lot, but it involved this one uh, thought that the presence of God at one time, and this is kind of hard to, hard to grasp from a 21st century perspective, but at one time, the very tangible presence of God, visible, lived with Israel. That it dwelled and they could see it in the form of a cloud or in the form of fire. And so Israel spent a bunch of time, the whole nation spent a bunch of time in the wilderness wandering around. And during that time, the very 
physical presence of God was with them, guiding them. And it, it would settle down, and they would basically orient their, their entire camp around it, sort of visibly representing that God is the center of who we are. And there would be this cloud, we're told, that would, that would reside in the center of the camp. And whenever the cloud rose up and began to move, the Israelites were like, time to move. Uh, and so they would pack up, and they would follow the cloud, or they would follow the fire until it stopped again. Very kind of weird to think about, but, but that's the story. And then later on, we're told that that physical presence began to live in the temple in Jerusalem, that you could see it. And there's a couple different words for, for, for what this phenomenon was, but one way to encapsulate it is this word glory, that the glory of God was visible, tangible, and it lived inside of Israel. But something had happened to the story, and the glory had left, and had not been seen in Israel for hundreds of years. So everything that they did was kind of like, well, okay, we have this land that we're living in, we have these, this, this life that we're living, we're crying out to God, but the glory of God has left Israel. In other words, they had a temple, but they no longer saw the visible, physical presence of God. And this was a little bit of a spiritual crisis for Israel, but they, but they were maintaining. And so uh, Matthew quotes from this scripture in Isaiah. And what Isaiah is writing about here is a time when the glory of God will return to Israel. So what I want to do is kind of read the whole passage that Matthew uh, is sort of hinting at. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, which I think might be on page 409 in the red Bibles here. But he says it this way. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. That's what we just heard in the Gospel of Matthew. He goes on to say, you, God, will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You'll break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms blood-stained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. And this might be a passage that you might be familiar with if you've been around church at Christmas time. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulder and he will be called what? Wonderful, mighty, everlasting, and the prince of peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Isaiah is describing a time when God will return to Israel. And we're told that when God and God's glory returns to Israel, that certain things are gonna happen. That there's products of God's glory, if you will. And when God's glory comes up, certain things are going to happen and certain qualities of life are going to be present. And just a few of them are be that when God's glory shows up in Israel, that we're going to see things like justice. 
That we're going to see things like fairness. Other translations say righteousness. That we'll see freedom for people who, who don't know what freedom is. That people who have been enslaved by debt or, or literally enslaved by people will no longer see that. And that God's glory also brings peace to it. So this is the story that Jesus is walking into. That to anticipate God's glory means to anticipate the byproducts of his glory. And these words aren't are, are really, uh, I, I think, rare or, or weird to us. That, that when God shows up, there will no longer be a need for war. That we're told when God shows up in the house, that the, 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 the uniforms that are blood-stained, the boots that are used for war, are just going to be thrown on a fire because they're not necessary anymore. That there will be an intrinsic element of fairness and righteousness that we will kind of be standing before God free of, of any junk inside us and that our, our society will be one of, of a fair society. Freedom, peace, fairness. And then lastly, this word justice. And this is kind of a different word maybe for us because if there's justice, there tends to be a judge, Right? And if you've been around church a little bit, maybe you've heard this word judge and judgment and there's something inside you that just kind of goes, oh no, we're talking about judgment. Because there's a part of us that doesn't like to be judged, is there? There's a piece of us that's just like, I could do without the, the judging part really because it really seems like, and it's really been misused in the church to say like, God will judge you. Oh, man, who wants to be judged by God? But I was reading something earlier this year, and it, and it brought to light this aspect. You see, when there's no judge, when there's no justice, guess who wins? The bullies. Guess who wins? The people with the most power. The people who can can uh, make you by the force of effort only do what you want to do. I was reading a story where a guy was in the streets of London after a, a soccer game, and, he, and the soccer game had let out, and there was a, a thousands of people in a very small place, and a lot of them had been drinking. And if you know anything about people in a very small place with a lot of alcohol, basically a riot was beginning to bre break out. And, and it was such that the police could not get to where the riot was taking place. And he said, this is what it's like when there's no judge and there's no justice. That the people who are most violent, that the people who most can manipulate uh, situations where there's no law, they win. And then he went on to say that, that the judgment of God, even if you look in the scripture, the judgment of God means that God says no to evil. That we think of judgment and we think of like, oh man, I don't want to be judged. But a lot of times in scripture, when you see God show up to judge people, you know who he says needs to watch out? The wicked. The people who thrive on chaos. The people who thrive on lawlessness. And finally, we're told that anticipating God's glory means that God will show up one day and say, evil, no. There is now a line in the sand, and this will no longer 
go on. So that changes to me what it means to anticipate God's glory. That, that it, it's going to be a time where, um, where God will do all these things. And in a sense, it, it already happens as well with Jesus, who shows up as sort of a representation of God's glory. Jesus returns to Israel saying, I'm bringing peace. I'm bringing fairness. I'm bringing righteousness. I'm bringing justice. And then it's also show, talking about a time that we believe will happen in its fullness Long time, or, or maybe tomorrow, who knows when God will decide to, to really return. But the question is for us, like, so what do we do about it? What do we do to anticipate God's glory? Do we just like, yeah, God, you go. You go. You know, do we just go, glory, woohoo, and stand on the, kind of on the sidelines while, while God kind of does these things? Maybe. There's a couple different ways, as I was thinking about this, that we anticipate something. There's anticipating as waiting and then there's anticipating as preparing. And, and the way I was thinking about it was this, was that if I know my wife is coming home at, at 9 p.m., maybe she's been out like studying or working, I will anticipate her coming home at 9 p.m. And I might look at my watch at 8.50 or 8.55, but if I'm reading a book or I'm watching a movie I'm just going to keep on reading the book and watching the movie. I will anticipate her being home, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I will, uh, you know, get a kazoo ready and, a, and, a, and some confetti, and when she walks in the door, I'll be like, woo, you're home! You know, I mean, I know she would love that, but, <laughs> but that's not always the way we anticipate something. And, and I want to suggest that that's not all bad. Because we talk about a lot, when, as we anticipate the birth of Jesus and we anticipate what that means, some of us need to just wait. Some of us need to just say, you know what? My life in the next few days needs to be about just sitting and being at peace and thinking about what the arrival of this baby meant for the world. It means for me now. But there's another way that anticipate can be taken, and that is this aspect of, of preparing. You see, if I knew that Shana was coming home at 9 p.m. and was bringing 25 people with her, and there was supposed to be a party, then my time of anticipation might look a little bit different, right? I might be cleaning the house. I might be making sure there's enough food, there's enough drink, there's music playing. I would arrange my life so that when they arrived, things would be ready. Or uh, maybe you'd think about it this way. Uh, I was thinking about how, um, you know, if, if, a, if a baseball team, if an outfield knows that a, that a hitter has a tendency to pull a ball a certain way or push a, a ball a certain way, they might anticipate him hitting by shifting the outfield one way or the other. In other words, they will begin to move in the direction that they feel the ball might be going. To anticipate it means to kind of start moving that direction. And so the question for us this morning is this. That if we know that the byproducts of God's glory brings justice, righteousness, fairness, peace, freedom. Are we moving towards those things in our life now? Because there's a tendency 
to just kind of go, I will wait, I'll pray, I'll cheer God on. And those are great things to do. But sometimes, anticipation means moving our life in the direction that we know uh, things are going. So if we know God is going to bring peace, are we moving towards peace in our life? Peace with our friends, peace with our neighbors, peace with people who we don't like, peace with our souls. Are we moving towards freedom? Freedom from things that trap us as individuals, but also freedom for things that hold people back because they don't have enough resources. Are we moving towards righteousness in our life? And lastly, are we moving towards justice in our life? To where we say, you know what? If God is really about saying no to evil, then I want to be about saying no to evil. And so I want to start moving that direction. And, and, and the image that really kind of ironically um, put itself in my mind was that this is actually sort of a message for a year from now. That wouldn't it be cool to say, you know what, a year from now, I want to be closer to justice than I am now. I want to be closer to righteousness than I am now. I want to move a step, two steps, ten steps, so that next Christmas I can say, you know what, God, I don't know when you're coming back. I don't know when your glory is going to really return to this earth, but I am anticipating it, and I'm moving this direction. I think that, that those are the questions, and the, the story, forgive me for this, the story is, involves glory, amen? The story involves glory. You can't take that out of God's story. He's written that part of it. And if, this is, and if God's glory means these things, then this is what God's people need to be about. And I want to reinforce what Pastor Mark said. That image of that Christmas tree over there says, we as a community are moving that direction. But to anticipate it just means to go, you know what, I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to keep on going. I'm going to keep on going. So I'm going to invite the band to come up, and, and I just want to pray for us now. If you, if you guys would... would Bow your heads. Lord, I, I pray that, that we would be a, a community on the move, that we, would, that we would remember that to anticipate something means to move towards it at times. It means to wait at times. Um. But God, I pray that, that we would keep our eyes on the end of the story and realize that we are sort of in the middle of a larger story that, that you have written. And I pray that our story would be shaped more by your story than, than maybe some of the negative stuff in our life. And that we would be a people that are not afraid to follow you. Just like Israel did uh, that maybe we don't have the, the, the physical presence of the cloud and the fire, but we have your spirit, we're told, living inside us and in our midst. And I pray that, Lord, we would take that as a guiding force. Lead us, change us, shape us through your story.
We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.